Hello Thrive Nation. Welcome to the Made to Thrive show. And on this episode... All the vaccines worldwide are still in the research stage. So they're all investigational. They are all under a research or investigation everywhere. So uh, individuals are not buying them. Uh, and we can't buy them uh, you know, as part of a medical product. So they're in research offered by government. So the first point is no one can receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for participating or not participating in research. It is a free choice. And uh, anyone who's trying to apply pressure, whether it be a doctor or insurance company, health system or a government, has really stepped over the line of bioethics. And uh, individuals are clearly pushing back against this because they know these violations of bioethics won't be tolerated. So for, first and foremost, the public basically doesn't want these vaccines. The vaccine centers have been empty for months. Uh, there is no public demand for these. And so as the pandemic has moved on, there have been papers on children. And we've been so lucky to hear the news that COVID-19 uh, is a very mild syndrome in children. It is less than a common cold. Children get about four to eight common colds a year. So COVID-19 is indistinguishable from a common cold. And the development program came around to pediatrics to even consider to allow them into the research program. In the United States, it came up in September and October. And this is what we know here, is we know that children um, have uh, uh, now, it was in the meeting minutes of our US FDA up through May, about 40% of American children, uh, ages five to 11 and then 12 to 17, those are the two age groups, have already had COVID-19. And there we know they can't get the infection again. Our CDC has told Americans that one can't get a second infection and ever pass it to anyone else. So we now have that solidly understood. And then and when we can- I just want to stop right there because I was thinking, Paul, what do you mean you cannot get it again? Obviously, we've got this sort of, you know, unfortunately false positives with a PCR test. Can you get COVID again? No, no, it doesn't happen again. You're right. It's just false positive testing. Our CDC now has told American that's the case. So we can set that aside. There's about 100 papers in the literature that suggest maybe a patient got it a second time on one occasion or another. I've told America, listen, if it's possible to even get COVID-19 a second time, we would have seen hundreds of millions of cases. We would have seen it sweep through susceptible people on the ventilator over and over again. We haven't seen that at all. It's one and done. 100 cases. Each time it's just a misinterpretation of a false positive. We know that after the infection, Steve, one can actually test intermittently false positive for a very long time. It's happened in my family circles. Someone tested 17 times intermittently after COVID. They didn't have 17 cases. They just had one. And so the only the papers that even suggest a recurrent infection either are based on low-level antibody titers on the first occasion, or they're based on differential testing. As CDC has published one paper like, uh, like that from Kentucky, MMWR. These are just basically invalid analysis. It's impossible for someone to get the infection a second time. Welcome, or welcome back to the Mate to Thrive show. I'm your host, Steve Stavs, Africa's pro biohacker. And this episode is truly going to blow your mind. It's with Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist, epidemiologist, internist, and who's been practicing for over 40 years. He has an incredible academic career. He's been an editor of numerous scientific journals, and he's the most published cardiologist of all time. 
Go and check out his website, America Out Loud, for further research, articles, and his own very podcast. We take a deep dive into COVID-19, what's really been happening over the last 18 to 24 months, the greater agenda, the jab, the risk and the reward for our own very children with regards to this type of treatment, early management of COVID-19, management of long COVID, and it's a show that I'm really proud of because I believe the truth is really uh, explored and has been revealed with the data and the research that is coming out from the US. Something that was blew my mind is that you cannot get COVID twice and the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has proven this with numerous scientific papers. So share this with friends, uh, share this with family, keep an open mind, go to matethrive.co.za for some cool uh, free ebooks and some more information with regards to our social channels. We're on Instagram at stevestabz.a, on LinkedIn at stevestabz and we've got a cool uh, YouTube channel called Steve Stabs. So if you need any more information or you've got advice or any recommendations then WhatsApp me to 064-871-0308. I truly believe the truth is going to come out with regards to this pandemic and always remember to lighten your purpose and be surrounded. Hello Thrive Nation, I've got a very unique special expert guest on the show. It's a privilege to have him on. I've uh, come to know his work because he is so highly um, qualified. He's a cardiologist. He's an internist. He's an epidemiologist. He's got 51 peer-reviewed published papers in terms of this uh, uh, COVID infection. Uh, I'm going to leave some of the credentials to him because I think it's important that Dr. Peter McCullough just lets us know how credible he is in this space. Uh, there are so many voices out there, so much noise out there, so many different interpretations of the data and the science. And here we've got someone who's uh, been in the forefront of medicine. I think he's starting your 40, 40 years uh, in terms of practice in the medical sphere. It's someone I highly regard. And I think there's going to be a, a very unique deep dive into certain areas in this pandemic, especially when it comes to uh, children and uh, the vaccine and uh, the risk of children and the risk and, and benefit of uh, the vaccines in children. So welcome to the show, Dr. Peter McCullough. Steve, thanks so much for having me. And it's a great pleasure to join your audience. As introduced, I'm a practicing internist, cardiologist, and a trained epidemiologist in Dallas, Texas. I spend about half my time seeing patients. So after I finish today, I have a a you know a whole schedule of patients. And about half my time as an author and editor. Uh, contributor uh, to uh, many in many academic circles in terms of large-scale clinical trials, data safety monitoring boards, uh, and I have uh, you know routinely everyday editorial decisions to make as the editor in chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine and the former editor of Cardio Renal Medicine. So I've been very involved in the COVID nineteen pandemic. I stepped forward uh, trying to help America and, and help the world move through this pandemic with the initial focus on developing early treatments to prevent hospitalization and death. We've been enormously successful there. We found that many drugs are needed uh, to treat patients to avoid hospitalization and death. And that went a great way, uh, long way to reducing the fear in the population. And then in this year, it's been largely a focus on vaccine safety and efficacy because we needed the critical analyses we knew we didn't know enough about the vaccines during the development program, and the vaccines are all different. It's not a single vaccine. 
So my um, opinions have been uh, uh, certainly recorded for history. Last year, I was a regular contributor in The Hill. That's a, a Washington insider journal for lawmakers where I published a whole series of opinion editorials that uh, really correctly predicted the key inflection points in the pandemic. And this year, I've started a window to America through America Out Loud Talk Radio. That's what you're seeing here, the McCullough Report, where each week I file a report to the country uh, with cited data, uh, interviewing the top experts all over the world. One of the things we're not seeing, Steve, is we're not seeing international collaboration. When was the last time in South America that you saw a team of American doctors and European and South American doctors all collaborating with the South African doctors to uh, come up with the best approach. You know, science is uh, a process uh, and is not something that's written into stone. We use inferential thinking, which means we actually gather information and then come up with conclusions. We don't state them ahead of time. Fantastic. And I know you've testified, I think, at the U.S. Senate and many uh, Senate states. And, and so we've got someone here, listeners, I, I suggest you go onto uh, the, the video channel, probably on YouTube, if it, if it holds. If it does hold, then we'll put it somewhere else if it doesn't hold. But I think have a look at the studies. I, I want to put links to the studies. I think Dr. McCullough is going to take us very, very sort of sequentially through the studies because I do want to talk about the children. Uh, I'm very concerned about these vaccines for for in the pediatric uh, uh, sort of sphere. Uh, on the Sunday Times, on our biggest sort of national newspaper, it was a big uh, get the jab. There's numerous medical insurance companies that are having forced uh, mandatory vaccination policies in places. It's starting with different of uh, all the major banks in South Africa and, and forced mandatory vaccinations is something that they're really trying to, um, you know, pursue and enforce. And so I want to start with the children, Dr. McCullough. What is the risk and reward sort of ratio? Is there a benefit? Should children be getting this vaccine? All the vaccines worldwide are still in the research stage. So they're all investigational. They are all under uh, research or investigation everywhere. So uh, individuals are not buying them. Uh, and we can't buy them uh, you know, as part of a medical product. So they're in research offered by government. So the first point is no one can receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for participating or not participating in research. It is a free choice. And uh, anyone who's trying to apply pressure, whether it be a doctor or insurance company, health system or a government, has really stepped over the line of bioethics. And uh, individuals are clearly pushing back against this because they know these violations of bioethics won't be tolerated. So for, first and foremost, the public basically doesn't want these vaccines. The vaccine centers have been empty for months. Uh, there is no public demand for these. And so as the pandemic has moved on, there have been papers on children, and we've been so lucky to hear the news that COVID-19 uh, is a very mild syndrome in children. It is less than a common cold. Children get about four to eight common colds a year. So COVID-19 is indistinguishable from a common cold. And the development program came around to pediatrics to even consider to allow them into the research program. In the United States, it came up in September and October. And this is what we know here is we know that children um, have uh, uh, now, you know, it was in the meeting minutes of our US FDA up through May, about 40% of American children uh, ages 5 to 11 and then 12 to 17, those are the two age groups, have already had COVID-19. 
And there we know they can't get the infection. Again, our CDC has told Americans that one can't get a second infection and ever pass it to anyone else. So we now have that solidly understood. And then and when we can- I just want to stop right there because I was thinking, Paul, what do you mean you cannot get it again? Obviously, we've got this sort of, you know, unfortunately false positives with a PCR test. Can you get COVID again? No, no, it doesn't happen again. You're right. It's just false positive testing. Our CDC now has told Americans that's the case. So we can set that aside. There's about 100 papers in the literature that suggest maybe a patient got it a second time. I've told America, listen, if it's possible to even get COVID-19 a second time, we would have seen hundreds of millions of cases. We would have seen it sweep through susceptible people on the ventilator over and over again. We haven't seen that at all. It's one and done. 100 cases. Each time it's just a miss interpretation of a false positive test. We know that after the infection, Steve, uh, one can actually test intermittently false positive for a very long time. It's happened in my family circles. Someone tested 17 times intermittently after COVID. They didn't have 17 cases. They just had one. And so the only, the papers that even suggest a recurrent infection either are based on low-level antibody titers on the first occasion, or they're based on differential testing. As CDC has published one paper like, uh, like that from Kentucky, MMWR. These are just basically invalid analysis. It's impossible for someone to get the infection a second time. It is very possible to get false positive testing. So we can lay that aside. It's one and done. It's just like SARS-CoV-1. SARS-1, people didn't get that over and over again. It's a one-time illness. Uh, the immunity is holding up against all the variants, which is uh, absolutely wonderful. So we know now that through the Delta outbreak, my estimates are 80% of American children have already had COVID-19. They're done. There's only 20% that still could get COVID-19. And of those who get COVID-19, uh, it'll be a mild illness indistinguishable from a common cold. Now, I recently presented at a conference with Scott Atlas, who was on the White House task force uh, with uh, President Trump, and he had data at a national conference showing that school teachers for the elementary and junior high levels are the safest profession from COVID-19 because the children uh, effectively are an immunologic buffer. Uh, There has been no credible transmission from students to teachers, and there hasn't been credible transmission from uh, young children to adults. 85% of the spread occurs in the home, and it's typically from adults to the children. That is the typical pattern. Uh, It's a respiratory illness. It's spread through the air. And we now know, by the way, in adults, that oral nasal decontamination with povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide is enormously effective. Adults can keep down their infectivity uh, down to nil if they simply take care of the nose and the mouth every day after coming home. Uh, It's not spread on the hands. People have had this this hyper focus on hand sanitizer. It's not a hand infection. It's not spread on the hands. It's spread through the nose. And so people need to take care of their nose and mouth each day. Best practical advice I could give your your listeners. Now, of the children in the United States who've had COVID, and there's been millions and millions of children have COVID, there are about 600 deaths reported through all different sources. And uh, uh, there was largely uh, little or no influenza last year. So these 600 deaths replaced the 600 deaths in children that would have died of influenza. And they're typically children who have severe lung disease, Uh, could have already been on chronic mechanical ventilation, cystic fibrosis, diaphragmatic hernias, cartaginer syndrome. There's a variety of pediatric syndromes that are very susceptible to severe uh, influenza, severe um, uh, respiratory syncytial virus. 
Uh, there's only been one child that we think was previously healthy who died of COVID-19, and sadly, that child didn't receive any treatment. So in children, even if they have severe symptoms, we can use uh, inhaled uh, bronchodilators, inhaled budesonide, oral azithromycin, oral uh, prednisolone, as well as uh, weight-based aspirin. So we can always treat children. So I'm making the case that no child would ever need a vaccine for such a mild syndrome because uh, it's the, the risk-benefit ratio can't possibly be there and they don't spread it to others. And we know that now by two of the registrational trial papers that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, the first one was by Frank and colleagues ages 12 to 17. And the next one by, was by Walther ages five to 11. And those trials showed prospective randomized placebo controlled trials uh, together over 5,000 uh, children that the vaccines prevented a few cases of the sniffles. That's it. There was no serious illness. Uh, the vac protection wasn't complete. It was inconsequential to the children, whether they got it or not. Uh, there was no mention of spread anywhere else. And about a third of the kids get pretty sick with the vaccines. They get fevers, chills, body aches, muscle aches. And one of the things we're worried about is what I'm showing on the slide mm. is called myocarditis. So here's a child holding their heart and we can't tell which children are developing myocarditis or not. But clearly uh, it is uh, 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 absolutely a disaster to have children develop myocarditis, which our US FDA warns parents, don't take the vaccine because it causes myocarditis. Well, you know, how do they know that? They know it because of um, the data I'm gonna uh, show you, if I can get this to, uh, to move here. It looks like I'm stuck. Uh, is show it based on the data uh, here that by Avolio and colleagues, this paper was published showing the spike protein produced by the vaccines directly damages heart muscle cells, pericytes, which are support cells in the heart. So this is clear. This is not conjecture. It clearly injures the cells that provide support to the capillaries and the muscle cells in the heart. And now this paper by Tracy Hogue at the University of California at Davis I want all the fact checkers on YouTube to fact check this and, and make sure this is clear to everybody. August 30th, 2021, the vaccines from the VAERS and VSAFE data, thousands of cases of myocarditis showed that 86% of these children required hospitalization. Oh. Healthy boys in this analysis have higher chances of being hospitalized with myocarditis than taking their chances with COVID-19 respiratory illness since it's so mild, uh, even at the peak prevalence. So the point is, it's an unfavorable trade-off. Hoag showed that it's explosive after shot number two, boys way more than girls. And the estimates uh, from the Hoag analysis are far greater than what the CDC has shown. The CDC reviewed in the United States 200 cases in June. I was on national TV telling Americans that this was uh, of great concern. I was uh, greatly concerned that this was just the tip of the iceberg and that they were serious cases. And in okay. fact, I was, I was, I was right. And uh, we know now we have over 13,000 cases of myocarditis or pericarditis in the United States. The Hogue analysis shows that 86% are hospitalized. And then this paper I've published with Jessica Rose and myself, Current Problems in Cardiology, you can see that the blue are the men and the uh, red are the women. It's women, boys way more than girls. This is true, by the way, of all childhood myocarditis. But the tail extends all the way up to age 50. So this is not just a childhood problem. If the heart gets seeded with the lipid nanoparticles and then the heart muscle cells take up the genetic material and start producing the dangerous spike protein, 
they can clearly be damaged. I think we just need to distill and just deconstruct a lot of that information. Number one, what is the gold standard to test whether you are SARS-CoV-2 positive? Because if the PCRs are giving us false positives the whole time, how does actually someone determine whether they've had SARS-CoV-2 or the actual disease COVID-19? Well, you know, this is, we're pretty deep into this discussion of myocarditis. Why don't we finish this off and I can okay. get into di- diagnostic okay. testing. Um, All right. So then maybe let's look at this. If there's no reward for children, you know, doing this, why on earth is uh, are well, so many authorities? Let's just, Let, let's just finish the next three slides okay. before we talk into diagnostic testing. So I want your audience to know that Lim and colleagues have reported in Korea, a 38-year-old female who's taken the Pfizer vaccine presented with chest pain, her EKG was dramatically abnormal, and she goes into complete flatline and needs CPR and goes on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Uh, Just to show you the great worldwide concern here, here's another paper from Korea, Choi and colleagues. These are all recent papers. 22-year-old man who develops chest pain five days after the first dose of Pfizer and dies seven hours later, and there's his autopsy showing massive inflammation in the heart, including the conduction system. So um, I'll take this off uh, a share right now and just let you know that the myocarditis risk far outweighs any benefits of COVID-19 in children. And you mentioned about diagnostic testing. All the diagnostic testing, whether it's PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, or using antigen testing, which is uh, an immunoassay method detecting the nucleocapsid, They're only regulatory approved and even supported by the World Health Organization and the CDC only for acutely symptomatic people. Under no circumstances should there be any asymptomatic testing. That means routine testing before airlines, routine testing in workplaces or schools. It's all completely against the regulatory authorities. It should be dropped immediately. Why? because all that testing does is generate false positives. When we look at the lowest risk populations, we can be over 95% false positive with these tests. And that's how they're generating uh, simply more and more data that's misleading on the pandemic. Okay, so great. So the gold standard, someone wants to know if they've got symptoms, they go for the PCR, will that give a Will that give a false negative or will that give a false positive? What do people do to ensure that they've had it now that you've now confirmed that people cannot get it twice? Yeah, so the issue is what about natural immunity? This comes up in practice every day. So a well-documented case with the characteristic signs and symptoms of COVID-19 plus a supportive diagnostic test, whether it be a PCR test, preferably at a low cycle threshold, less than 28, according to CDC standards in the United States, or an antigen test, a high quality antigen test, that would be, let's say a 10 minute antigen test. Uh, I, I would say a step up from the lateral flow tests that are done in the United Kingdom. But you have that definition in China, by the way, they would do anal swabs and do limited sequencing. We have a limited sequencing assay available in the United States. Um, I would say that makes a well-documented case. That's it. That person, uh, as far as we can tell, is one and done. They have complete, robust, and durable immunity. Now, people have said, well, what, what if I couldn't get a test? And what if I, I thought I had it? Then the next step would be to get antibodies. Now, we know the antibody testing that's done by the major lab platforms, Roche, Abbott, 
orthoclinical diagnostics, Quest, LabCorp, you may have others in South Africa. Those are fine. The positive controls on these are people sick enough to be in the ICU. So if you can hit that antibody test, and there's antibodies, now we have antibodies, by the way, measurable against the spike protein and the nucleocapsid. They're very sophisticated antibodies. That confirms immunity. We're done. You're done. Now, the antibodies will wane over time in everybody. And it doesn't matter because our T cells have been tuned to identify the infection. In the United States, we can measure that with a test called T detect test, T hyphen detect test. And that uses next generation sequencing to look at some chromosomal changes in T cells to make sure they code for recognition of SARS CoV 2. So we have those three levels case definition, antibodies, and T cell testing that identifies the immune. And you know, our CDC tells us now, based on their calculations, that 146 out of 330 Americans are now immune to COVID-19. They've already had the infection. And that's, those data are always running behind. My estimates right now, we're at 200 million individuals. We don't have that many susceptible people left to develop COVID-19. That's the reason why we're not seeing big outbreaks. Okay, great. So if the, the risk is far greater for children, and maybe you can put a cap, maybe under 30, I've heard a lot of your interviews, listened to a lot of your podcasts, being on the America Out Loud website, which I think we're going to put as a link. I think that's very informative. A lot of articles there, a lot of your podcasts there. Uh, the podcast is incredible, very informative, very deep dive into all these areas. Is If there's no real reward, why are these government agencies really enforcing or, or making available all these vaccines to children with such a high risk and such uh, you know, to the vaccine and such a low risk in terms of developing COVID and having complications. What is the agenda for our children? Well, first off, I mentioned they're all research. So all the governments are trying to perform research. So that's uh, partly part of the goal. Um, uh, the second part of the goal uh, could be this uh, idea that um, uh, in offering a vaccine, it's offering something to the public where previously the governments off offered nothing. They, they provided no early treatment strategies. They provided no innovation with respect to oral nasal decontamination. Uh, so our governments were very monolithic with respect to their offering a response. But you're, you're asking a different question. You're asking really why would they uh, promote or support or mandate something that's harmful? <clears throat> and that boils down to what's called mass psychosis. I think experts now agree we are in a worldwide mass formation psychosis. And this is worthwhile going over. I credit Dr. Matthias Desmet at the University of Ghent in Belgium and Dr. Mark McDonald in uh, Psychiatrist in Los Angeles. His book is out, by the way, uh, The United S uh, States of Fear. And it just directly tells uh, the world what's going on about mass psychosis. Mass psychosis has four critical elements. The first one, there must be a prolonged period of isolation. We've had that with these unnecessary lockdowns. The second one is that we must have things taken away from us that previously provided enjoyment, like sports and school and work, etc. The third one is that we must have constant free-floating anxiety, which we have through the news cycle, always reporting uh, some more negative news, people losing their jobs, uh, variants, etc. And then the fourth element, which is the capper, is that we must have a single solution presented to the public by a government or by a, an entity of authority. And there's no limit to the absurdity of the solution. This is very important. Now, this the same applies in religious cult mass suicides. 
where the solution is mass suicide. And it's absurd. The same thing happened in Nazi Germany when people walked into gas chambers, when the whole public did things that are now considered atrocities, uh, the Holocaust, that was part of a mass psychosis. This now worldwide vaccination program, which offers more harm than good, is clearly making the pandemic worse. Uh, experts agree on this, is now part of the solution of a mass psychosis. So we're in a mass psychosis. That's my diagnosis for the world. Wow. So would you summarize that as someone out there who's listening, who has a child or is under the age of 30, should definitely not take this vaccine? Under, under no circumstances, because that parent wants the child to be healthy. So it would be absurd to subject the child to something that would make them unhealthy and harm them. So it's, <coughs> it's very important. This is not a one-time injection. It's relatively clear now that the injections, the immunizations are going to be periodic administrations at every six month or more frequent intervals. So it's not a binary thing, get the vaccine or not get a vaccine. It's really does one engage in a periodic injection of what we now know is a gene transfer technology that causes harm to the human body. And again, there's no limit to the absurdity here because of the mass psychosis that's so well um, uh, subscribed. You know, the news cycle in the, in the United States is really buzzing today. To give you an idea of mass psychosis, the outgoing mayor of New York in his last three days in office has just declared that all private businesses must mandate the vaccine. Now, why now? I mean, why if, if, if COVID-19 was a, it was a bad problem, why didn't he mandate it, a, you know, a year ago? You know, why now? And then why in the last three days of his administration, you can tell what's going on is mass psychosis. There's no limit to the absurdity because the time doesn't make uh, uh, any sense. Uh, th this issue of the risk benefit doesn't make any sense. Why private businesses? That doesn't make any sense. The private businesses don't want the vaccine. So you can tell that this is almost punitive. It's almost, uh, it's almost an attempt at, at injury being performed at a public level. Now, all the data, all the research, all the papers that you are speaking about that have come to the fore, is this going to break the mass psychosis? What's going to stem the tide? I know many states over there have stopped the mandatory policy of vaccinations. What's going to stem this sort of enforced mandatory vaccination program? You know, I don't think it's going to be uh, more papers or more scientific discussion. I think it's really uh, public opinion. And the public opinion is going to be driven by relatedness. It depends on if the public can identify something they can relate to. It's pretty clear that in a family, in a school, uh, in a church, if someone dies after the vaccine or is seriously injured, others can relate to that. And they can realize, wow, you know, somebody in my family was injured. Now I'm, I'm cautious about these uh, uh, vaccines. So relatedness may help. We're seeing uh, sports figures die on the field in an unprecedented manner. We know with myocarditis that a principle of treatment is no physical activity, none. For three to six months, if someone has myocarditis, if these athletes have taken uh, one of the uh, vaccines, and indeed had subclinical myocarditis, now are going all out on the soccer pitch, for instance, uh, that would explain this, this rash of sudden deaths, which is many fold higher than we could ever expect. The leading cause of death on the field, by the way, is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm a cardiologist, and I can tell you, we routinely screen high-level athletes for this condition. They, you know, they're not on the playing field anymore. 
So this rash of sudden deaths with Macarius, that that would make it relatable. Uh, It could be relatable if uh, big public figures have problems. You know, we've already had uh, in the United States, we've we've had public figures with with various things. You know, former President Trump had COVID nineteen. He was treated with sequence multi drug therapy, as I have published. He basically received a protocol that I conceived, and uh, we saw him, we saw him breeze through it. We had Governor Abbott in Texas. His he failed the vaccines. The vaccines didn't work. He developed COVID. He required treatment. We had podcaster Joe Rogan get sick. He received early treatment. I'm going on his show tomorrow, and we're mm-hmm. going to go over that. Uh, in Austin. And we've had quarterback Aaron Rodgers uh, decline the vaccine, and then he got early treatment. But then we had quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Ben Roethlisberger, get get COVID-19 despite taking the vaccine. Same thing with basketball star LeBron James. So we have all this relatedness going on, maybe with sports figures. But what Matthias Desmond says in the end, how does mass psychosis end? Unfortunately, it ends like Nazi Germany. It ends with mass loss of life and then this revelation later on that, wow, that the whole world made a giant mistake with these yeah. vaccines. Sure, I've got to get that book. Sounds interesting. We'll put a link to that. So children, definitely those under the age of 30 should not get the vaccine. Those that have had COVID, that have got natural immunity, possibly you can share a paper or two that people on YouTube can have a look. How important is natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity? You know, that is a terrific um uh, that is a terrific uh, question. Let me go share my screen again, because uh, so many people know. Can you tell me, uh, Steve, what is the um, what is the situation with natural immunity in South Africa? Natural immunity isn't recognized at all in terms of preventing COVID or dealing with COVID at all. Uh, it's only looked at vaccine in terms of, you know, preventing transmission. Obviously, we know that that's not true. And also, you know, the big brother feeling, you know, look after your neighbor, have the vaccine because of that. Natural immunity is not regarded uh, at all in terms of a way to uh, ensure that you you can deal with the, with, the, with the infection. So that's where we're sitting now, obviously being a member of Panda, looking at Mark Giraudot's article, Natural Immunity versus Vaccine-Induced Immunity. That's been quite popular. But unfortunately, Panda as a group has not gained a lot of significant traction uh, in, in South Africa preventing a lot of these enforced mandatory vaccinations. There's a lot of good doctors there that put a lot of papers together and have written rebuttals against a lot of uh, the different medical insurance companies, but it's still in its infancy with regards to enforcing change here in South Africa. Yeah, I mentioned uh, these are the U.S. CDC data updated October 2nd, 146.6 million estimated total infections that would have natural immunity, and and that is absolutely great news. Now, the vaccine program, we have 330 million people in the United States 220.5 million people have already taken the vaccine. So that should be uh, more than enough. Uh, We know, by the way, that the the, um, vaccines don't stop the virus. Here are data by Rymarisma showing equally uh, uh, dense viral loads in the nose, equally infectious individuals vaccinated or not. So the vaccines don't work to stop COVID-19. And I wanted to um, uh, update you on this issue of uh, natural immunity. So let me just uh, skip forward in the public program uh, to that, which is um, which is very important since we have the since we have the data. 
And uh, one of the best sources to go on natural immunity is go to the Brownstone Institute. Can you see this, uh, Steve? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is by Paul Alexander. This was at 128 studies supporting natural immunity, October 17th. I can tell you this number now is over 135. I'm one of the consultants uh, on this. Uh, the, the, the papers are overwhelming about natural immunity being robust, complete, and durable. And now our CDC agrees. Uh, there has, they have never found a patient who can get the infection a second time and spread it to someone. It is amazing that we basically through the Freedom of Information Act, we got that because they were saying before that, wow, you should take the vaccine. You can get it a second time. We, we said it's not possible. We have Diana Harshberger in the United States. She's a congresswoman. She is calling for a bill to uh, demand federal agencies acknowledge natural immunity. They should be exempt from wearing masks, should be able to take care of family members uh, who get sick. No need to be locked down or ever be in your house because you've already had the infection. It's done. Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's just, this is natural immunity is the way that your country and mine are going to basically end the pandemic without recognition of natural immunity. Uh, we will never end the pandemic. And now three papers and three more papers, since I've posted this in the McCullough report show if a naturally immune needlessly takes a vaccine, they're injured. They are far more likely to, to have serious injuries, uh, cardiac, neurologic, hematologic, or immunologic, uh, and require hospitalization. So under no circumstance, if someone who's had COVID-19, should they take the vaccine again? They can't get the infection a second time, and the data suggests that they're harmed. Sure. So you're saying to me, if someone's had it, they know they've had COVID, they should not have the vaccine because they could have a reaction. They could have some type of chronic disease that develops after getting the vaccine? Yeah, under no circumstances should a COVID recovered patient ever take the vaccine. This is very important. And, you know, we can save uh, if, if individuals really do uh, have a, a feeling that the vaccines are safe and effective. We haven't gone over efficacy in this interview, but if they do, they'd want to save the vaccines for, for, for people who would really need them. And certainly wouldn't want to waste the vaccine on someone who's recovered from COVID. Yeah. So tell me about natural immunity. I think there's a paper or two that says it's up to 27 times more effective than having vaccine-induced immunity. What does the data or the research show in terms of how beneficial it is compared to the vaccine? Well, it's infinitely more, right? Since you can't get a second infection with natural immunity, it's infinitely more. What's happened with the vaccines, and I'll reshare re re the screen is that the vaccines have basically failed. So uh, while natural immunity has not failed, the, um, the vaccine immunity has failed uh, greatly and, and people are really frustrated by this. Um, and so let me uh, uh, show this to you, that we have the, the data started coming in about failure of the vaccines uh, basically in the last uh, few months. So uh, the vaccines did have efficacy. And let me bring this up for your audience here. Uh, they're they're going to kind of go to a medical lecture uh, today, Steve. No, no, that's fine. That's what I want people to do, to have a look at the papers so that when they do speak to their family, they can go back to this YouTube video and show them the papers that you're citing and show them, you know, the details. Yeah. What I wanted to show you is that uh, uh, to be fair, the data on whether the vaccines do anything clinically just came in in the last few months. So this paper by um, 
myself and colleagues, this is the CDC, our U.S. Centers for Disease Control. You have a similar organization in South Africa. What's the organization in South Africa? There's the Health Professionals Council for the, and then you've got, um, yeah, I, I hear you okay. in terms of so, the, yeah. Health yeah, similar to Health Professions Council, this paper showed that that this doesn't, um, uh, you know, evaluate whether or not someone survived the vaccine. They assume you take the vaccine and you're fine. And this is vaccine efficacy against COVID-19 hospitalization. Uh, and it does show some protection here, but it's very biased. In the United States, if someone's taken a vaccine, they're not tested for COVID-19 in the hospital. But if someone has not taken the vaccine, they're tested across many different presentation categories. So this, this is heavily loaded and biased towards trying to show the vaccine does something. Uh, but let's take it at face value, 92% uh, for Moderna, 77% for Pfizer, and 68% for Janssen. That would be similar to your AstraZeneca. Yeah. But in the limitations they indicated that the confounders are that, you know, they didn't account for the Delta variant. And the Delta variant is widely known to be resistant to the vaccines. Now, this paper by 1040 is far and away the most um, uh, positive paper on vaccines. Uh, it only had a, a small number of people uh, who contracted Delta during the study period in the United States, 45% Delta, but showed again about 85% protection against um against uh, hospitalization. But once we dig into the data, uh, we look at actually who had COVID-19 and did they pro progress to mechanical ventilation? We saw an overall about a 60, uh, about a 59% protection against worsening in the hospital. And these people by and large had COVID-19, but no mortality difference that was statistically significant. Uh, of those uh, vaccinated 6.3% deaths and those unvaccinated, 8.6% uh, rate of mortality in the hospital. That was not statistically significant. The lower panel shows that older people seem to have a shorter hospital stay uh, for those uh, compared to those that were not vaccinated. And then this paper hit uh, basically just a few weeks ago from our Veterans Administration, 780,225 individuals. And they showed several things here. The first on the left, is the vaccine efficacy was really high for all the uh, protection against hospitalization for all the vaccines, but it fell off a cliff in September because of the Delta variant came in and plus the vaccines ran out of their protection. And then over age 65, this is the real benefit of vaccination. And I want you to see this. There, for non-COVID related deaths, there actually is a protection of vaccines because healthier people take vaccines than unhealthier people. So there's always a bias in there. But of the COVID deaths, there is a protection, Steve, and it's about a 1.5% uh, absolute protection. 1.5%. So, you know, to take the risks of the vaccine for this prediction, that makes a difficult proposition for those over 65. And then this paper came in from Nordstrom and colleagues from Sweden, 1.6 million pairs of vaccinated or unvaccinated, uh, Pfizer up top, 92% protection against symptomatic infection, not hospitalization or death, but just whether or not you get COVID. That dropped off to 23% over six months. Moderna dropped from 96% to 69%. Moderna, by the way, is always a bit more protective than Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, because Moderna is 100 micrograms of messenger RNA, Pfizer's 30 micrograms. So one of the things that the government authorities are also not doing is they're not recommending what's the most effective vaccine. They're saying literally take any vaccine, which 
again, is absurd and represents the mass psychosis. Now, we're up to 22 studies showing waning vaccine efficacy over three to six months. That's the reason why the boosters are now recommended. But look at these large numbers. The CDC told us October 18th that the CDC, by strict definition, had 41,127 Americans who were fully vaccinated and sadly either died or are hospitalized. 85% of the deaths, 66% of the hospitalizations occurred in those over 65. So that's the group we want to protect. We're not worried about children. There's no children on this slide. The vaccine failures that we worry about are in the adults. And we knew the vaccines were failing because there were outbreaks of Delta on a a British uh, naval vessel. There was this outbreak described by the CDC. Look at this in Massachusetts. These were people in congregate settings. Two thirds of everybody who got COVID was fully vaccinated. So it was obvious the vaccines were not working to stop COVID-19. And then we had these two papers, one by Havers on left from the CDC, COVID Net Network, and Fillmore from the VA, showing that through June, before Delta, this is only with about 2% Delta, even with the legacy variants, 23% of Americans in the hospital were fully vaccinated. So there were large percentages there. Now our CMS data show, uh, now that the Delta variant has shaded in, 60% of Americans over 65 are fully vaccinated, over 90% of Israelis, over 80% of the UK. It's obvious the vaccines don't stop COVID-19. They do reduce death a little bit. Um, and it's a very small, about 1.5% benefit. Um, but we now know what we pushed the vaccines. And with this paper by Neeson, we actually reduced diversity and ended up with the super dominant Delta strain. We should never fool with mother nature and mass vaccinate into a, a prevalent pandemic. Look, this is what happened. We're 99% Delta. And uh, the Delta, in my opinion, has been very hard to treat. I see and examine patients every day. I know what I'm talking about. Delta has been very hard to treat. And the reason why Delta is so successful, this paper by Venkata Krishnan, we'll show one in a minute, the spike protein is mutated to escape the antibodies and remove the antibody binding site. That's the reason why fully vaccinated people get Delta anyway. And so now we have the Omicron variant uh, and it's not a transformer. It sounds like a transformer, but in fact, it's a variant. And this paper, again, by Venkata Krishnan, leading company in Boston called Inference, shows the mutation pattern. And this is worth taking a look at for your viewers. This just came out yesterday. You can see here that the uh, Omicron in the lower left panel has the greatest number of new mutations, and then it overlaps with existing mutations. You uh, in South Africa, you were uh, very famous for the beta variant. You had six unique spike mutations there. Uh, We've had Delta for the longest time, seven unique mutations uh, in Delta that made it more infectious. But look at all the mutations in Omicron, basically peppered around the uh, receptor binding domain. The data um, for coming out of the modeling studies by Dr. Fantini in France, very reliable source show that actually Omicron is going to be less transmissible than Delta. It uh, So far, it's always hard to judge severity of disease because what determines if someone has a severe case or not is whether or not they're treated. Right, so this this idea we can't say oh Omicron is less severe than Delta. It depends if they got any treatment. It, you know everything's severe if you don't get any treatment for for mm. a serious illness. Um, so it's kind of ridiculous to say it's it's more or less serious. But so far, uh, assuming no treatment, that Omicron uh, has not led to uh, a scores of deaths or hospitalizations. I said on national TV last week it looked like an evolutionary mistake. 
that um, uh, you know viruses don't mutate like this to become less transmissible. Um, uh, and uh, this may have just been, uh, there's been some uh, theories out there that uh, there may have been some, uh, in a sense, fusion or recombination with another uh, coronavirus that took a lot of the uh, virulence out of it. Uh, the shocking thing was how quickly the vaccine manufacturers all announced within 48 hours that they were changing their vaccines. And those of us couldn't believe this, even Novavax, a vaccine that still isn't out, which is a antigen-based vaccine. We have a lot of hope that Novavax could be far safer than Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson, AstraZeneca. You know, many of us in my field believe that we should just frontline Novavax and retire the genetic vaccines. We've seen far too many deaths and, and permanent disability from the genetic vaccines. But even Novavax said, Oh, they're quickly. They're already. They already had testing in progress for the Omicron. It was. It was almost non-believable. It takes months to get up research mm. programs and get approvals and things like this. So um, we'll have to see. I've predicted that this will not supplant Delta. Delta has been far too successful as an organism. That this will carve out an ecological niche, just like just like um, the epsilon and the Lambda variants, which came along during the era of Delta. But I think it's Delta here to stay until something comes up that's more infectious. Great. So uh, just uh, going back, it's the Medical Control Council, the MCC, that would have allowed this uh, experimental sort of jabs to come into South Africa. But so tell us, if there's a 1.5% decrease from those that are aged over the age of 65, so those are the people that should possibly get it if they want to improve you know, their chances of mortality or not dying uh, by 1.5%. I mean, who should be getting the vaccine? But Steve, it's hard to recommend that. We have an analysis by Kostoff and colleagues. And let me just bring you to this. This is the hardest thing because you would say, well, geez, you, you know, over 65, it looks like there could be a, a benefit uh, to this. Well, I mean, uh, why wouldn't we recommend to people over 65 to take the vaccine? Well, we have this analysis from Kostoff where the title of the paper is, Why Are We Vaccinating Children Against COVID-19? But he analyzed all age groups. Look at the data here. On the left is the COVID-19 respiratory infection deaths and look at the age gradation. So it's clearly age is the most important predictor of uh, severity of disease and death. And then look at the COVID-19 vaccine deaths on the right. It's the same age type distribution, but the y-axis is different. And these are deaths that occur seven days after the vaccine. I mean, the data is there's no other explanation. People just take the vaccine and die. So the question is, what is more likely to happen if someone is uh, 65 and contemplating the vaccines? In the cost of uh, an analysis, a novel best case scenario cost benefit analysis showed very conservatively that there's five times the number of deaths attributable to each inoculation or vaccination versus those attributable to COVID-19 in the most vulnerable demographic. One is better off to actually skip the vaccines and then take your chance with COVID. Now that we know that we use oral nasal decontamination to reduce viral load, we use monoclonal antibodies, drugs in treatment, that it's better for someone to just stay away from the vaccine center and then do take prudent measures and then treat COVID-19 when it comes up. The cost of analysis assumed no treatment. The cost of analysis basically just said, what we have from the observed data. By the way, the Hogue analysis showing higher risk of myocarditis hospitalization than respiratory illness hospitalization with COVID. And then the cost of analysis for death 
Again, more deaths with the vaccine than taking a chance with COVID. Those were presented at the um, uh, open part of the, C- of the FDA meetings in September and October in the US FDA by external experts, and they weren't disputed. Sure. They were not disputed. These are in the peer-reviewed publication uh, realm now, and they're not disputable. So to answer your question, we actually can't overall find a situation where participating in a re- with one of these research vaccines uh, is uh, offers more benefit than than not. Sure, that's a big thing to say from Dr. Pina McCullough. Just last uh, words in terms of early um, protocol treatments that you can give uh, patients. From what I understand, we cannot find monoclonal antibodies here, but let's talk about some early treatment that you can uh, go through. And then also what the person can do from home, because I know that you're a big believer in getting early treatment and getting treatment at home as quick as you can. Uh, in my practice, in my other life, we've used a lot of hydrogen peroxide nebulization, iodine nebulization. Uh, Dr. Brownstein, Dr. Levy that we've had on the show have really shown how beneficial that is. But in terms of your protocol, how would you suggest people uh, uh, go forward? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Let me just uh, go over the data really quickly. I'm glad you let me do this. It's kind of like a grand rounds. Um, on, uh, let me just go over the data on... Um, I'll share the screen on where we are with um, with this oral nasal decontamination. You mentioned hydrogen peroxide, but I, I honestly, I this is the probably the biggest advance I've had in my practice this year, and I was very um, convinced by this trial, Steve, by Chowdhury and colleagues <clears throat> from uh, the uh, Adkins Sakana Medical College in um, Bangladesh. Effective 1% povidone iodine mouthwash, gargle, and nasal and eye drops. They even use eye drops. And these are patients who are coming down with COVID-19. Um, uh, and what we're talking about is uh, a simple solution of, of uh, basically a povidone iodine and diluting. It's a 10% solution to diluting it down to a 1% solution. You can even do 0. 0.4, 0. 0.6, you know, two teaspoons, six ounces of water, one tablespoon in a cup, and then using a bulb syringe, squirting it liberally up in the nose and then spitting it out the mouth. So the virus is in the nose for three to five days multiplying, particularly Delta at very high viral loads. And to knock down the viral load is very important because it's going to reduce the invasiveness of the virus into the body. Look at these data. 303 people ran, uh, randomized each group to the pound iodine oral and nasal washes uh, versus using just lukewarm water. And look how the PCR positive numbers drop dramatically by day three and day five and day seven. It's night and day difference. This reduces the infectivity of one to another because basically you can't spread it if the virus load is dropped down so considerably in the nose. So this is, this is contagion control, but it's also having improved clinical benefits. Randomized trials of data we have, look at the need for oxygen support, hospitalized with oxygen support. It's night and day difference. Uh, So this oral nasal decontamination clearly, clearly plays a role. This is povidone iodine uh, diluted, which is in the United States is betadine diluted with water. It can be diluted with some saline or one can put a pinch of salt in it. Or as you mentioned, hydrogen peroxide diluted with some Lugol's iodine. As long as it's not swallowed, this is perfectly fine. But this oral nasal decontamination now is a big part of the program 
You asked what happens um, when you develop COVID-19, you're doing this and our symptoms. This is the what's called sequence multidrug therapy for COVID-19 is fully peer-reviewed and vetted. It is the bedrock of our treatment programs in the United States. It's now been actually copyrighted as McCullough protocol. Uh, what you need to know is that we do home quarantine. We start doing the, the povidone oral nasal washes, not two times a day now, but actually six times a day, contact tracing, fresh air, open the windows. South Africa is a beautiful country. Do not stay inside, outside, age under 50, nutraceutical bundle, zinc sulfate, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin is reasonable, watchful waiting, complete the self-quarantine, we're done, done. No need of testing, no need of testing. Our CDC says do not test at the end of that quarantine period, it's very important. Now, if feasible in the United States, we give antibody infusions over age 65, certainly over age 50, medical problems, one hour infusion and then go home in an outpatient center. We can use carisivimab and indivivav with dosing. Now, since this publication, we have two more products we can use. If we can't use those, then we use uh, 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 oral anti-infective uh, therapies, hydroxychloroquine supported by over 250 studies, ivermectin supported by over 60 studies, or favipiravir outside uh, in Japan, in Russia, four states in India. Uh, we use favipiravir. And then now we just had the Merck drug approved in the United States, molpinavir for emergency use authorization. We added azithromycin and doxycycline to cover some overlap with chlamydia tawar and with mycoplasma. Uh, we use inhaled budesonide throughout. Uh, we use oral steroids, dexamethasone, prednisone, or hydrocortisone on day five or pulmonary symptoms. We use colchicine throughout based on the Colcarone trial, 4,000 patient randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial, colchicine throughout for 30 days. We use aspirin throughout, 325 milligrams a day. And then high-risk patients, heart and lung disease, I put them on anticoagulants right away because what causes the low oxygen saturation is blood clots in the lungs. And then we use oxygen concentrators at home and we get patients through the illness. You know, we know if we have older people with medical problems, if we don't treat them, they are absolutely, the virus is going to slaughter them at home. It's unethical not to uh, treat patients. It's immoral. Uh, and from a clinical perspective, it's illegal. It's called failure to treat. It's malpractice not to treat patients with COVID-19. So if South African doctors are not treating patients with COVID-19, they're over the line. They need to get, they need to get in gear, overcome their fear and start treating patients compassionately as they should have from the very beginning. Now, if you say you can't use hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, no big deal. Use the other drugs in the protocol. Dr. Chetty in South Africa has taught us that you can add in cyproheptadine, montelukast, uh, famotidine, other drugs, don't need them. So I wouldn't get stuck on hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin at all because we can, as long as you're using four to six drugs to manage the illness, uh, no single drug is necessary nor sufficient. Great. Thank you so much. Just your parting words for the people out there, message that you want to give them. I think it's really important. You mass psychosis. I think it's, you know, so fascinating, so interesting that that's going to have to be overturned for, you know, a lot of these protocols, mandatory vaccinations, the fear that's out there, you know, the social distancing. We've always said it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing that's need, obviously, to reduce viral load, getting outside, sunlight, vitamin D, a lot of these home protocols. But what would the message that you'd want to leave people in this really crazy pandemic time where, unfortunately, the unvaccinated are, are being ostracized? It looks like the president mentioned in the paper yesterday that he'll be closing off what we called provincial travel to the unvaccinated and restricting movement of the unvaccinated. Many countries sort of lockdowns on the unvaccinated. What is the message of hope that you can give people out there? 
I would give the, your listeners five quick points. If you were to have these points on an elevator, this would, this would basically summate about 200,000 papers in the literature right now. Point number one, the virus is not spread asymptomatically. So whether vaccinated or not, it doesn't matter. If you don't have symptoms, you can't spread it. Now, once somebody has symptoms, vaccinated or not, then it can be spread and individuals should stay at home. That's the only thing that's needed. The only people ever should be under lockdown or restricted from travel is people with symptoms. So it's not whether or not you took the vaccine that matters, it's whether or not you have symptoms, okay? Second point is uh, because it can't be transmitted without symptoms, no testing, no asymptomatic testing, none. Just should be banned. That means no testing at borders, no testing before planes, no testing in schools. All it does is generate false positives. The World Health Organization agrees. Stop it. Uh, uh, point number three: that um, uh, natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable. Once somebody's naturally immune, they don't have to worry anymore. No vaccines, unlimited travel, no need for masks or lockdowns. The vac, the 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 naturally immune are in the best shape all, uh, of all. So. I'm personally naturally immune. I have no worries whatsoever. I'm very positive about life. I have no concerns whatsoever. Uh, point number four, the, the, the virus is very treatable, but started early at home. It's progressively less treatable in the hospital. All South Africans should demand early ambulatory treatment. No single drug is necessary nor sufficient. So if everybody in South Africa is hung up on hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, drop it, just follow Dr. Chetty's protocol, works fine treat patients at home, okay? High-risk people. And then the last point is the vaccines are not sufficiently safe and they're not sufficiently effective to have them be a linchpin in policy. So let's not restrict South Africans of passing borders and things based on the vaccines. The vaccines basically don't work. And so they will be transmitting virus anyway when they develop symptoms. So we need to just basically drop our hyper-focus on the vaccines. They're not sufficiently safe. They're not sufficiently effective. Many groups have called for their worldwide withdrawal from the market. It's basically a failed program. Right. Last thing is, when is the pandemic ending? When does, is that when everybody's got COVID-19, everybody's got natural immunity? Are we looking at six months, nine months? When is everybody going to get this virus or have had, had it? We're two years into it, and how I think how deep the psychosis is, it's not over with until the psychosis ends. You can imagine if we got to zero cases of COVID, the psychosis would just shift and say that we have to take vaccines to prevent COVID from coming back, right? So you can imagine the psychosis isn't going to end uh, until we, we come to the, you know, the conclusion of the psychiatric and psychological part of the pandemic. And so my prediction is about three to five years, unfortunately. Sure. Thank you so much for your time, Peter McCullough. He's a world expert, epidemiologist, cardiologist, internist. And he's on the Joe Rogan Show very, very soon. He's been, his website, America Out Loud, is an incredible resource. Lots of articles, lots of podcasts. I really recommend. I've listened to his podcast. And I just want to salute you for your courage, your calling. You're going against mainstream media. You're going against traditional sort of Western medical practices that have just said, take the vaccine. Unfortunately, you, this only way it's going to prevent this pandemic. It's the only way it's going to save your life. It's preventing hospitalizations and death. So I just want to salute you, declare favor and blessing over you for your courage. I pray good health over you that you can carry on just trumpeting this call. And so thank you so much.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Made to Thrive show. New episodes are released weekly and are published exclusively on the Made to Thrive podcast link. If you're interested in receiving more thriving insights as well as receiving other exclusive member benefits, visit madetothrive.co.za forward slash subscribe. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have and they should seek the assistance of healthcare professionals for any such conditions.